I'm not trying to uh, imitate Dennis up here this morning, nor uh, Chester, but uh, this last uh, this last week, Carolyn decided to clean out her study, which ended up ended up being an all day uh, enterprise, and she found this uh, enormous computer in a box in her uh, closet, and she wanted it out of her office, so she put it in the hallway. So uh, uh, I said, well, I'll take that down to the storeroom. And she said, no, you'll hurt your back. Why don't you just uh, leave it right there? And I said, well, if you leave it right there, I'm going to fall over it. And I didn't know I was a prophet. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. I fell over the uh, stupid box and landed right on my knee. So between uh, Dennis and I, we have one good leg that... uh, It's, it's working at least. Uh, I'm always amazed at what the uh, women in this congregation do. The, uh, I don't know how many of you know it. I, I assume most of you do. There were a thousand and twenty women gathered uh, yesterday at, at the uh, Grove to hear Muriel's ministry and those that, that uh, taught in the workshops. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful time way that God is ministering to women throughout the uh, the entire state. And I, uh, on behalf of the elders, simply want to express thanks to all of you that were involved in that, that enterprise, the enormous amount of work that went into it, the prayer and all the effort that was expended to, uh, uh, to put on the conference and uh, to do that wonderful things for, thing for the women of our state. Now, uh, our topic this morning is discipleship, and, and I want to read for you the statement that uh, the elders uh, have written. Discipleship entails following Christ in obedience and investing our lives to help others become obedient disciples of Christ. To be a disciple of Christ is to obey him, to bring every thought in action into captivity to him, to set the pace by our own example of obedience, and to labor to help every believer grow to that level of maturity. We believe that discipleship takes place in all the ministries of the church, but we see the critical importance of individual investment in others and in the need for personal accountability to one another. Meeting one-on-one or in small groups, we seek to encourage and equip others for the work of ministry. Our goal is to entrust the truth to reliable men and women who desire to teach others also. Through that investment, as Jesus said, we store up treasure in, in heaven. I read that statement this past week, and I thought back on my own uh, pilgrimage and remembered the men that fell in step with me throughout uh, my life, those that urged me on to God. Uh, Without those men, I really would not have made it, humanly speaking. In high school, it was my young life leader, a man named Dick Langford, whom we dubbed Digger because he looked like Digger Odell. I don't know if you remember that undertaker of the, back in the 50s, but uh, Digger was my hero. In college, uh, it was a, uh, a man by the name of Gordon Donaldson. He had been a Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot during the Second World War. 
uh, fighter ace, and uh, was heroic to me for that reason, but more so because he started to meet with me and taught me the scriptures and encouraged me on to God. And then in seminary, it was none other than Howard Hendricks who latched on to me, a bewildered young seminary student, began to spend time with me and invest his life in mine. And then when I went into ministry, it was uh, Ray Steadman who uh, took me under his wing and began to teach me and encourage me and help me to know what ministry meant. These were my mentors. Without them, I I simply could not have uh, survived. I read somewhere a statement that unless a young man or a young woman is being approved and taught by an older person, he or she is being hindered. There's a wealth of wisdom in that statement. We all need an older, wiser person to help us along the way. We cannot do without it. The, the term mentor has a long and rich history. According to Homer's uh, Odyssey, when Odysseus went off to fight the Trojan War, he left behind a wise old man by the name of Mentor, whose responsibility it was to teach his young son, Telemachus, the, uh, the, the wiles of the world, as Homer put it. About 2,000 years later, a man by the name of Francois Fenelon, uh, who was the tutor to uh, the grandson of Louis XIV of France, took that story and enlarged it and brought into our vocabulary the term mentor. Originally, that was a proper name. Today, it's a, it's a common noun, mentor. But uh, mentors are anything but common. I keep asking myself, where are those older wiser men and women who are strong to entrust the truth to others. Uh, Timothy had his Paul. Elisha had uh, Elijah. Mary had uh, Elizabeth. Ruth had uh, Miriam. Uh, Mark had Barnabas, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. There would have been no Mark apart from, uh, from Barnabas. Now, where are those who are investing their lives in the lives of others. Now, it's really, uh, for me, mentoring is, uh, is the right term, though it equates easily with discipleship. The problem with using many of these, uh, these terms with which we're so familiar is that familiarity breeds contempt. We, don't, uh, we think we know what discipleship means, but we may not, or the term has become so hackneyed and can't that we easily dismiss it. That's why I, I like that term mentoring in place of discipleship. It's a term that uh, uh, has been reinvested with meaning by the men's movement. Uh, Robert Bly, our poet laureate and the guru of the uh, current men's movement, uses that term a lot. One of the things that the secular men's movement has observed is that Men are fatherless. By and large, as Bly says, there's never enough father. Most of us, even those of us that had good fathers, felt that we did not get the uh, affirmation, the training, the equipping that we needed. It's also true of women. All of you long for someone to uh, to mentor you. The problem with the men's movement 
is though they have been very accurate in their analysis of the problem, they really have no answers. We do. We do as Christians. And the answer is embedded here uh, in the scriptures. Now, as a starting point, I want you to turn to the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew 28. The last uh, couple of verses of Matthew's Gospel. Great Commission is set against the backdrop of opposition. The clergy of Jesus' day were trying to cover up the resurrection, trying to explain it away. On the other hand, this small band of disciples who uh, were left, the eleven, in obedience to Jesus' command went into Galilee. Our Lord had told them before his crucifixion that after, he says, when I, after I have risen from the dead, uh, I will meet you in Galilee. So in obedience to that call, they went to Galilee, according to verse 16. Verse 16 actually begins with an adversity, but it's set in contrast with the guards' report and the story that was being circulated among the Jews that Jesus had not risen. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Uh, Actually, the word is some hesitated. This is not the word for strong doubt. It's just that some of them were puzzled. They were baffled. They were bewildered by the events of the preceding days. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, but baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now the mandate here is to make disciples. In the Greek text, it's just one word, disciple. Disciple the nations. The noun form of this verb uh, means a learner, a pupil. An apprentice, a tyro, a beginner. So disciples are basically learners. We do not really have disciples. We make disciples. What we want to do is place people under the discipline of Jesus Christ. I've always believed that discipleship is mutual. It's always mutual. We're always discipling one another along the way, and the focus of our discipleship is to place people at Jesus' feet so he can teach them. Jesus said to to his disciples, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, which was a common term in those days for yoking oneself to a rabbi. Take my yoke upon you, that is, become a learner, and learn of me. Now, that's what a disciple is. It's someone who learns of Jesus. And our task is to make disciples. Now, as Jesus told the disciples here, the task is really twofold. It's a matter of baptizing them and teaching them. By baptizing, our Lord means the whole process that we refer to as evangelization. 
giving our faith away to others and then baptizing them as a sign of that of that faith. That's how people are introduced into the kingdom of God. And having been brought into the kingdom, it is our responsibility to teach them everything that Jesus said and to teach them to obey him. That's the process. Baptizing and teaching. Now I want to point out that the mandate is not to go. Almost every translation puts it that way. Go and make disciples. Actually, there is only one finite verb in the whole, uh, in the whole section. It is the verb make disciples. It's an imperative. It's a command. Go is actually a participle. It would be better translated this way. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make disciples. In other words, discipling is a lifestyle. It's a, it's a perspective on life. What, what our Lord is saying is this. Whatever your business is, wherever you go in this world, whatever you do tomorrow, make disciples. Our prayer ought to be, before we touch any life, Lord, use me in some way to further that person's progress toward God. Help me to Put that person at Jesus' feet so that he or she can learn more uh, from him. It is both a temporary and a long-term thing. It's a lifestyle, but it's also an investment, a long-term investment. We never, we never know when these temporary contacts, these transient, casual contacts that, that we make, with people are going to pay off. Often we're unconscious of the results. I was sitting uh, uh, with Carolyn and uh, Holly Newman, who is uh, visiting with us this weekend, uh, at a restaurant last night. And a young man leaned over me and he said, I just want to tell you that that book you gave me changed my life. He had to introduce himself to me because I couldn't remember who he was. And then he walked out the door. And uh, as I sat there trying to think, now who in the world was that? I recall about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, running across this uh, young man at the courthouse and chatting with him about spiritual things, discovering he was a believer. He was struggling spiritually. And I happened to have a copy of John White's The Fight in my car and I went out and got that book and gave it to him. And I said, here, Gary, perhaps uh, this will be of help to you. And I honestly never thought of him again. And yesterday he leans over and he says, the book you gave me changed my life. Now, life is full of those kinds of contacts. If we walk with a conscious awareness of the presence of God in our lives and we ask him to use us to influence people, he will do that. Discipleship is that kind of 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 temporary relationship. A good example is our Lord on the road to Emmaus. He had just a few hours with those disciples, but he impacted their lives for eternity. Now, the kind of discipleship that I want to talk about this morning is the more long-term discipleship, the effect that we can have by mentoring. That's why I like to use that, that term. We're talking about taking someone into our life and beginning the process of helping them move on in their relationship uh, to God. Now, all of us, I think, feel inadequate at this point uh, 
We've all been through courses on how to disciple people, and we've read books, and there are lists of things to do, and all of us say, oh my goodness, I can't do that. Our heart tells us we can't do it. The devil tells us we, we can't do it. And uh, we all shrink from the task. I mean, who am I to disciple someone? I'm still struggling in my spiritual life. What do I know about the Word of God that I can impart to others? Everybody feels that way, believe me. Uh, as most of you know, our number two son is a high school basketball coach. And uh, his whole family lives, eats, drinks, sleeps basketball. And uh, he asked uh, uh, our little granddaughter, his oldest daughter, Sarah, who is five, what she wanted to be when she grows up. She said, I want to be a basketball coach, she said. But first, she said, I have to learn how to tie my shoelaces. <laughs> now, uh, that's the way I feel about discipleship. I want to be a discipler, but I got to learn how to tie my shoelaces first. You know, what, what are the first and fundamental things? Now, that's what I want to talk to you about uh, this morning. Now, I want you to turn to John 1, and I want to look at a couple of days in our Lord's life as an example of how he went about doing it. He is our example in all things, uh, both in terms of our spiritual life, our faith, and our ministry. As I, now, as I look at our Lord's ministry, I always see it in terms of a series of concentric circles, like an archery target. The larger circle represents the masses that he taught. Our Lord had the opportunity to teach to enormously large groups of people. And the ten our tendency is to think, well, now that's why he was so effective. Now, I think of the Mass as a mixed multitude. There, if, if you look closely at the crowd that gathered around Jesus, uh, you would find all sorts of people. You know, there were Roman soldiers there who were there for crowd control, who were bored out of their skulls. They were thinking the whole time, you know, I want to get out of this hot sun and go get a beer. I mean, you know, who wants to, who wants to hang around here? They had absolutely no interest in what the Lord was saying, I would imagine. Uh, there were cigar-chomping Jewish businessmen that were pretty cynical about what Jesus was saying. There were curious onlookers who just, they just wanted to listen in and hear what Jesus had to say. At the very center of that group, there was a very small group of people that I think of as the believing remnant, a hard core of faith. There were probably about 70, if there were that many. Here were the thousands. Here was the hard core. And at the center of the hard core, there were the twelve. And at the center of the twelve, there were three. Now the thing that strikes me about our Lord's ministry is that he began with that small core and he ended with that small core. The closer he got to the cross the more and more time he was spending with fewer and fewer people. His ministry was not based on his ministry to the masses. As a matter of fact, he was always trying to avoid the crowds. He had an aversion to them. He would slip away from the crowds and spend time with his apostles. Now I ask you, here's a man who had an infinite job to do and three and a half years to do it, and where did he spend his time? He spent it with 12 men, 
And, and actually three out of the twelve took up the bulk of his time. Now, I want you to look at the way he begins his ministry. What John is doing is giving us a brief look at a couple of days in our Lord's life. You can actually figure out what days of the week they were. The weddings in that culture at that time were always conducted on Wednesday for some reason, so you can just count back. And uh, John picks up the story actually on what we would call Sunday, the first day of the week, verse 29. Our Lord was wandering through the crowds that thronged uh, uh, around uh, John the Baptist. John points him out and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's disciples begin to think about John's statement. Verse 35, the next day, which would be Monday, John was there again with two of his disciples. And we know it's two the, there were, Andrew and John. Andrew, because his name is mentioned later. John, because he is always anonymous in this book. He only describes himself as the apostle that Jesus loved. And secondly, because we're told later in this account that Andrew first got his brother, who would be Simon Peter, with the implication that John then went to get his brother, who was James. So these two men were standing with with John the Baptist, and John says again, here is the Lamb of God, points out Jesus. That's the Lamb of God, right there. That man, right there, walking, is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And all the implications, all the predictions of the Old Testament fell into place. Andrew went off and got his brother Simon, Peter, John went off and got his brother James, and they came to Jesus. And they said, well, Rabbi, where do you live? He said, where are you staying? He says, come see, come and see. And they began to follow Jesus. So now there were four, Jesus and four. Andrew, Peter, James, and John. The next day, which would be a Tuesday, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Why, why was he going to Galilee? Well, he got an invitation to a wedding. A couple he knew up in, in Cana were getting getting married, and his mother was the hostess for the, for the wedding party. So Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Nothing very difficult about that. And uh, along the way, he finds Philip, and he says to Philip, follow me. Incidentally, you'll notice that there are no volunteers in this group. Our Lord chooses those that will be with him. He, he said, I, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Matter of choice. Uh, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. They were friends, already knew each other. The interesting thing about all the apostles, with the exception of Judas, is that they're all from Galilee. Judas was from, uh, uh, he was from Judea. His name means uh, man of uh, Kerioth, and Kerioth was a city in, down in Jerusalem, translated as Kerioth. In most of our most of our texts, he was a Judean. The rest were Galileans, and almost all, they knew each other. That's the amazing thing. And a lot of them were related to each other. Didymus may have been Matthew's twin brother. Uh, I don't want to take time to go through all the disciples, but they were second cousins and first cousins and friends, and and they had even probably known the Lord before. Not in his role as the Messiah, but simply as a young man growing up in Nazareth. Galilee's not that big a place. And uh, so he, he finds Philip, and he invites Philip to follow him. And Philip finds Nathaniel. He says, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Nathaniel 
follows our Lord. And uh, now there were six. And then the Lord makes his way up to Galilee for the wedding, not intending to do any miracles there because he never knew from one day to the next what he was going to do. He only did what he saw the Father doing. He's made his way through life. And both by his example and by his teaching, he began to impart truth to them. Now, I'm not going to take time to go through the the rest of these chapters. And John, you can read them for yourselves, but the thing that impresses me is is how relaxed our Lord was in this ministry. He spent an awful lot of time just hanging out with these 12 men. A lot of time sitting around campfires, a lot of time out, out fishing, a lot of time walking by the seashore. He took them with him in his ministry, spent time with them. I've long believed that there, there are really only two important parameters to ministry. One is befriending people, and, and the other is imparting truth. That's what ministry is all about. You just walk with people and spend time with them and socialize and do ministry with them. And they see you in all sorts of situations. You know, as I think back on the men that, that impacted my, my life, I, I really don't remember much of what they said. But I remember much of what they were. Uh, my friend Gordon Donaldson, as I mentioned, w- was a Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot. He fought in the uh, uh, Second World War, the battle for Britain. And I remember one time uh, his telling me that he'd just come back from a conference in which he was absolutely humiliated. Early in his Christian life, he was asked to speak because he was a war ace, shot down a number of, of German planes and and uh, he had embellished almost every story. And one story, he got shot up coming back across the channel and had to belly in. And, and actually it happened. But with every telling, it got bigger and bigger and bigger and more exciting. And, and he was int- later in his ministry, he was introduced by a man who, uh, who remembered one of the stories that he told. And he told this story to the whole congregation. And Gordon got up and he said, I just have to tell you that it isn't true. I lied about that. And, you know, of all the things Gordon told me, that's the thing that stuck in my mind. Not that he was perfect, but he had that guileless, open heart. You know, we don't have to be perfect to have an impact upon people. What people want to see is that we're real, is that we're authentic, that we're genuine. And and, and even in the process of suffering, we impart truth, as Paul puts it, as death works in you, life works in others. As they see us go through the hard stuff of life and the way we respond to it works life in them. It's just a matter of being with them. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, uh, our elders were talking about this passage last week. He says, I just want you to remember two things. I was with you and I didn't shrink from telling you everything that, that God had, had imparted to me. You know, our, our Lord every day went before the Father and spent time with Him, and He learned from Him, and that's what He imparted to people. He said, "Whatever I see the Father doing, that, that, that's what I say." Someone has pointed out that the best, the best disciples are not sayers; they're seers. That they're, they're those that see what the Father is doing, who spend time with Him and learn from Him, and 
And then they, they tell others what they're learning. It's all we have to tell people. Nothing more, nothing less than what God is teaching us. Don't have to be profound. Don't even have to get it all right. As a friend of mine says, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. The servant of the Lord says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of a learner. Unfortunately, that that's translated in most of our Bibles as the learned, but it's uh, the word in Hebrew, lemud, for a pupil. Uh, the Lord God has given me the tongue of a pupil, of a learner, that I might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He, he wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as a learner. He uses that same word, limadim, a learner, one of the learners. That's all we are. We're learners, starting from the ground floor. Every day we sit at our Lord's feet, we learn from him. What we learn, we impart to others. That's what discipleship is. It involves befriending people, and I do believe it involves a choice. I think we need to ask God to give us one or two in whom we can invest our total being. Uh, you say, well, how do you choose them? Well, I, you know, I, I think to some extent there is a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to describe. It's, it's, it's fit, you know. It's kind of an empathy that you have with certain people. You come in contact with someone and, and you just you just mesh. It's like Jonathan and David. You know, Jonathan was listening to David tell a story, and we're told that Jonathan loved David. They were two of a kind. They were cut out of the same piece of cloth. They both were sort of swashbuckling warrior types, and and Jonathan's heart was drawn to David, and their hearts were knit together. People like that. You just you just love them. Sitting across from a young man uh, this last week who was, who was telling me about his disordered life as he was growing up. He did drugs. He, he dealt drugs. He was just a mess. And how God brought him out of that. And I just, I just had to say to myself, I, I just really love this guy. Just, I mean, I haven't gone through that. But it's just, you know, it's just an empathy, a fit. So that's part of it. But I, I think there's something over and above that thing we call called empathy or fit. It's God's choice. Jesus said of his disciples to the Father, these are those that you have given to me. Our Lord spent an entire night in prayer before he chose the twelve. And I, I, would, I would encourage you to, to start praying. Just ask God to give you one or, or two. And as you make your way through your life, he'll make it abundantly clear to you who those are. I can't tell you to find them. It's not your problem. It's God's problem. He'll, he'll bring them in, into your life. I remember years ago after a fraternity meeting I, I'd used, at Stanford, I'd used a statement from, uh, I think it was Dwight L. Moody, the world is yet to see what God can do through the man or woman whose heart is wholly given over to God. A young man walked up to me as Brian Morgan. A lot of you know him. He's now the senior pastor of uh, Peninsula Bible Church South. And he said to me, by God's grace, I want to be that man. And I just loved him. And that was the beginning of a 25-year relationship that's still going on today. So as you ask the Lord to give you someone to invest your life in, he'll do that for you. You don't need to worry about it. Just ask him, what a wonderful privilege to be able to befriend some young man or woman and impart the truth to them and see them see them. Uh, growing in in grace. 
show you another passage. We just have a moment. Would you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1? I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says to his young friend, verse 12 of chapter 1, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard. Now, my text says what I've entrusted to him for that day. Actually, the, the verse reads, I believe he's able to guard my deposit. Now, I don't think Paul is here talking about the deposit that he's entrusted to God. I think he's talking about the deposit that God entrusted to him, the gospel, because that's the argument of the books, how, how the gospel comes to us. So we can read that text. Uh, I'm persuaded that God's able to guard the gospel he's entrusted to me. Now look at verse 14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Now look at 2.2. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to reliable men and women who will also be qualified to teach others. You understand the argument? Paul saying God gave me the gospel. It was a deposit that he gave to me. I've given it to you, Timothy. Now you give it to the next, to the next generation. If that process ever broke down, the gospel would, would die. It would die in this generation. It's like passing a baton from one relay runner to the next. God gives us the truth through some, someone who mentors us. We pass it on to someone else. They pass it on to someone else who passes it on to someone else. And on and on the process goes. And what we're looking for is people that can entrust the truth to others. Reliable people, teachable people, faithful people, men and women that are full of faith, who are willing to obey the truth and pass it on to someone else. So the process goes on. Uh, Howard Hendricks, Ray Stedman, others spend time with me. and I spend time with a couple of young men. and They spend time with a couple of young men and... And the gospel goes on, runs, has free course, spreads. Must have worked. Our Lord imparted the truth to these 12 men, and within 30 years, they evangelized the Roman Empire. Yet one failure, Judas, Paul, I believe, stepped into the role that, that Judas vacated, and those 12 men planted churches all over the Roman Empire. They basically evangelized the Roman Empire within 30 years. The next generation evangelized the entire world. Uh, Mark, who is Peter's sidekick, evangelized North Africa. Others went into India. They went as far as Great Britain. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. It's a process that works. I, I don't think any of us want to waste our lives. You want to invest your life in, in a way that, that's eternally valuable? This is the way. Just, just ask God to give you one or two. Someone that you can befriend and impart, impart the truth to. So that they can impart the, the truth to someone else. You know, I've had people say to me, boy, I wish I was Luis Palau or I wish I was Billy Graham. Billy Graham gets to speak to thousands. What an impact that man is having. And he is. No question about it. God has raised him up to speak to the masses. Let me ask you something. Suppose you chose one person, 
God gave you one person this year to disciple. So the first year, there are two of you. And the next year, the two of you chose two more. So in 1996, there are four of you. You know how long it would take to disciple the entire state of Idaho? A little more than 14 years. And you could disciple the entire United States in slightly over 20 years because the curve just goes like that. So you want to live your life to good, good effect? Oh, well, I'm nobody. You know, I, 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 I can't talk to the masses. I'm tongue-tied. Ask God to give you one person to invest your life in this year who will in turn be strong to entrust the truth to others. Let's pray. Lord, we do want our lives to count. We do not want to drift through life idly and waste the time that you've given to us. We want to redeem it. We want to buy it up. Most of us are just common, ordinary people. We don't have opportunities to speak to the masses or to touch many lives, but we can be faithful with the one or the two that you bring into our sphere of influence. It's our prayer that you would use us in that way to make disciples of men and women. Baptizing them and teaching them to do everything that you've asked them to do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.